0: Well we say
1: uh, good, evening.
0: good evening. Good
1: evening. Hey this is uh this is fresh. It's a uh, brand new um brand new book we're starting in and we have a new brand new session and here we are in September. And it's ninety degrees. September. We're in the beginning in September, yes. Anyway, thank you guys for coming out. Great to be here. And as we start with Genesis, we have to realize that um, in our times that we live in, you can't hardly explain Genesis without talking about some of the things that's going on out in the world and even in the church as far as the big lie. And the lie of the universe, as we know it today, is, of course, evolution. It's a shame we have to bring that topic up, but when you discuss Genesis... Uh, Even amongst Christians, they will weave some kind of evolution in. Um, Sometimes it's very sophisticated and sometimes I think could be very complex. Definitely uh, people that are highly educated usually will believe in evolution and uh, in its absolute existence. And I believe for all intents and purposes, uh, for the most part, it's kind of captivated uh, our entire world that we live in. And so when we think about that, we have a heap of explaining to do, don't we? Well, just open up the Bible and uh, let God's Word speak. And I'm—that's uh, for me, that's good. Um, what they believe in is something that's absolutely impossible. It's irrational. There's no logic to it. Uh, and it's done with great academic effort, all from the great universities of our time. And when you think of uh, modern evolutionary theories that have come about... And it's accepted universally uh, all across the world. Um, One of of the theories is that no one created um, this world. Uh, It was all done by chance. Uh, There was nothing really here uh, at first at all. And then some of evolution says something was here. We just don't know what it was. Uh, But it, it... they say it progresses through constant changes and processes, mutations, and it's always upward, always upward, when really it can't be. You can't have mutations that go upward. It's never been shown, never been proven. It's always downward, never upward. But evolution, the idea is to go upward. And so when you come to Christianity, you have theologians and uh, really big-name Bible commentators that are well-respected, um, who uh, would be great exegetes. They would uh, take scripture and uh, be able to apply it in in every uh, sense and be able to tell you what what a book of the Bible is about. But when it comes to this topic, they have a little trouble because of the things that are out in the academic world. So uh, anyway, most people will uh, deny what we believe to be absolutely true in Genesis. And uh, we're not popular in the way that we think in that believe it or not even in the, in the Christian realm um, it's it's straightforward I think it's relatively simple I think it's very unmistakable I think the uh, historical account of creation here is made to be understood and it's not to be reclassified as some kind of allegory uh, some kind of metaphor or a myth or some kind of legend um, or some kind of a it's non-literal approach. There's the, this can't be literal, they say. Uh, it's a poetic style that's put here. And that's basically how it's interpreted in the church and definitely uh, through people that would be respected in most other areas. Uh, evangelicals in, uh, in our realm today have taken their stand on the teaching of the Bible. You, you take an, uh, a normal Bible-believing Christian and he would not let the secular or liberal Christians even be able to change his mind about things like the deity of christ and heaven and hell and uh, even the bible uh, in its uh, accuracy but when they're challenged by evolutionists those very same people that can stand so firm on all the other ones fall right in line and irrespecting of uh, the teaching of scripture they'll follow what evolutionists from outside the church teach and the next question would be well why would anybody do that why would a christian um, who who has always claimed to be a Christian believe in something different than what we read here in this historical account. Well, number one, because of the academic circles that they're involved with. And uh, you just can't be a creationist if you want to maintain a position. And if you happen to be a teacher or a professor, uh, it uh, is not too wise to let people know you believe in creation because uh, most we have found Uh, have lost their jobs because they were creationist or even mention that there was a possibility of that. Uh, A second reason people might go into that is because they're ignorant of true science. See, you can be a creationist and believe in true science and that's being able to apply the rules where they're supposed to be applied. Uh, Where science can go and where it can't go And then thirdly is the illusion of appearance. And that's what Darwin uh, did whenever he went down that road. It was an illusionary observation. It had nothing to do with DNA, which we now have. We have all of the um, uh, great scientific finds uh, that have just come into play, DNA being the biggest one just within uh, our lifetime. Um, That uh, illusion of appearance. It doesn't have anything to do with genetics, anything like that. So, for all those reasons, that's why a lot of Christians even have fallen into this, this trap, this big lie. It's it's tremendous how far a lie can go, isn't it? The big lie. So, they um, there's this concept of uniformity. Has anybody ever heard of uniformity? You kind of know what that is, right? Um, everything, they'll say, like... For instance, uh, a tree. You can take and cut into a tree, and you can tell how old a tree is by the circles, right? Every year there's, uh, it, it has a circle, and then another one, and then another one. You can tell how many years it's been there. and Or in the case of light, and that is the one approach I think that has really baffled a lot of Christians, well, a light year, you study the light year, and then you've got a star that's way out there that it would take a million years for that light to get here, or maybe five million years to get here. So therefore, in God's creation account, because of that, creation has to go back much further than maybe that 6,000 years that we see in a biblical sense. And so because it would have to do that. So, And, and then you also think of... Uh, uh, progressing, everything has to progress at the same rate uh, that 's what they say, but that there again is not the the sense either and if it would be, if it all was at the same rate, this uh, world would be at least twenty billion years old okay anyway that 's some of the um, things that we go against uh, as Christians when we approach this in the way that we 're going to as a simple historical account that is in a literal sense and uh, we'll go to the word uh, in a moment as we go to the Lord in prayer Father we thank you thank you for this evening thank you for your book Uh, the book that has the very beginnings in it you tell us how we got here and you tell us who made us you tell us a lot you have revealed yourself to people To mankind, and and actually all of mankind, if they don't want to believe you, are just suppressing the truth. Uh, You have shown who you are just in creation, Uh, but we know also there is special revelation. That's in your word, and so as we get into this tonight, thank you for showing yourself. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps us uh, discern truth. And being able to take that truth and this foundation that we have and uh, be able to believe everything that's in this Bible that you've given us. And that is a gift. Uh, We just pray, Lord, that it can make an impact on our lives and how we uh, are able to bring the gospel to uh, the lost. Uh, Most people out there don't believe in a Creator God in the way that you present it. And uh, so we want to be able to be strong in that area in our apologetics. In uh, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, anybody have an idea what Genesis means? It's a Greek word, actually. But this is a Hebrew book. But we have an, a, a Greek word here in the sense that it's genesis, uh, or genesis, or genetics, or genes, uh, which we're dealing with origin, or beginning. And that's really what, what it means. To the, to the Hebrew person, it means beginning. In the beginning and so that's the name of their book in the beginning and quickly in English it's called Genesis the author is who? Moses and so Moses gets the account although people way before Moses um, maybe let's take it back um, a couple thousand years before him or uh, 1500 years let's say 2000 somewhere on there they knew the creation story account as being passed down, but Moses being inspired then puts the books together. God gives him uh, the, the this revelation that he's able to write down, uh, which much of this probably had been written down and passed down. It's not just oral tradition, but they they had gotten truth. They knew who it was. Uh, interesting, this book of Genesis, and not that we're going to do a whole study of the book of Genesis um, on first setting out Lord willing to do the first three chapters and then we'll see what happens after that but we're going to take it slow as you can see tonight I've got it mapped down for one verse Lord willing (laughs) but uh, this great book of Genesis covers more time than any other book in the Bible because it'll go from the time of creation all the way to the time of uh, Moses which is 1500 B.C. Uh, so um, that's like uh, 2,500 years at least. That's covered in the Book of Genesis, and uh, Paul wrote Romans. Who knows? Maybe in a uh, one setting or, or so. It wasn't years. Probably and it took us years to do Romans or Ephesians. So, Genesis. Anyway, Mesopotamia is where it is going to start, and then it'll move to the Promised Land, which we think where Israel is at now, and then also Egypt. That's where Genesis will end up at. So it covers uh, quite a few different areas. And uh, when you think as far as the historical theme is concerned, this, this is helpful. First 11 chapters are going to be dealing with the primitive history before the patriarchs so 11 chapters right up to that point um, Abram I think is mentioned there in Genesis 11 so he becomes a bridge between the first and the second half of the book uh, the patriarchal uh, timeline will start at Abraham, Abram then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob and then Joseph and that is kind of the line that this uh, takes here far as the theological framework uh, is involved is it's about God theological study of God Um, this book is presenting God right from the very outset and uh, you can't you can't miss it matter of fact when we uh, realize that this is the history of the originals God is the original he's the only original Um, you have the arts here the invention of the arts you will have the rise of nations and the fall of nations. Uh, you will have uh, the entrance of sin and death. We get a lot of answers right in this first book. Matter of fact, uh, by the time you get for, through the first three chapters, you've got an incredible amount. And it has the account of the great flood, which explains a lot of reasons why uh, we have uh, some changes in this world um, as far as some of the the findings are concerned, whether it be the Grand Canyon, um, other places. We can see where the fossils come from. There's so many different things uh, because of that cataclysmic event. So anyway, we have all that right there. Uh, Matthew Henry calls this a history of generations. Generations. People. God has put there. Uh, It's a pattern, though, talking about theology, of God's abundant grace time you get to the third chapter, you already have sin. That's already started. Three It ch- didn't take very long, did it? But God's grace is right there. He's more than adequate, more than abundant over that sin. And that's way you will see Him all the way through Genesis and, of course, all the way through the rest of the Bible. He is that way. We see His character, we see His nature uh, very, very early on. And so what we're going to do, we're going to try to start with what happened before Genesis, before we get into Genesis. And you can say, well, how can we do that because there's no other book before Genesis that's inspired that we really know. Well, there's enough in the rest of the books to tell us what was happening a little bit before that. You remember in the New Testament we get, what's one of my favorite expressions? Before the foundation of the world before the creation of the world. What was going on? Um, Well, we know God existed. We know that. Go to Psalm 90, verse 2. I could just take the approach of coming in here totally blind also and act like, and that would be a good thing to do too, act like I don't know how the rest of the book is. We have to start with Genesis 1, 1 and go from there. Not knowing. But it's hard for me to do that. I'd have to cloud out so many things I already know. So I'm presuming a lot of things, but it's because we know we've read the back of the book. We cheated. <laughs> 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I was reading lips back there. Before I said the word, I saw the words coming out of Audrey's mouth. (laughs) You are God. So, God didn't need anything. God was perfectly happy. He was complete. He always has been complete, will be complete. He is self-sufficient. He didn't need to create to make himself better. And he said, I'm bored. I'm going to do this now. God never gets bored. God was perfect. He doesn't change like the Mormon's God changes. Because the Mormon God, which are people, really, (laughs) they keep changing. And then they get better. So the gods just keep getting better and better. They evolve, don't they? But our God can't get better because He's already best. Anyway, so God existed. And He existed perfectly. Everlasting, everlasting. He is not bound by time whatsoever. Well, you also... You're not going to find the Trinity in verse 1 of Genesis. So, And we're not going to get out of verse 1 tonight. But we're going to talk about the Trinity for a few moments here, realizing that before there was ever the creation, there was a time that God didn't create. But before that, God has always been a trinity. And uh, a perfect communion, perfect unity uh, that they have. But we can go into Genesis 1.26. As a matter of fact, we can go earlier into Genesis uh, because we know that the Spirit of God in verse 2 is uh, a creator too. But in verse 26, we get a very, I think, heavy statement about... God being more than just one person. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so right off the bat, in the first chapter, not only in verse 2 do we get the Spirit involved, but in 26 it says us. And that's saying there's more than one person here. And some people could say, Ah, that's the angels. Uh, No, angels don't create. Angels are not God. Only God creates. Let us make man in our image. We are not made in the images of angels. We were made in the image of God. So even right there, we get something that I think is very instrumental in knowing that there is more than the one person. 322... Then the Lord God, and by the way, we have two words or two names for God right there. Already in chapter 2, we'll, we'll encounter that. But here he's saying, Yahweh, Elohim, behold, a man has become like one of us. Yeah, he knows good and evil. One of us to know good and evil. One of us. So he says us again, which he does not say me, but us. So he's getting involved here. What we know to be is the Trinity. Well, we're going way ahead. Maybe it's the Spirit of God and God the first person. We haven't seen anything of the Son. But knowing the New Testament and knowing other places, the Son created too, didn't he? S-O-N. Chapter 11, verse 7. Still in Genesis. This is going to be the third time he has said us. 11 Seven, Come, let us go down. And they're confused their language. They may not understand one another's speech. They're the Tower of Babel. We've gotten to chapter 11 and three times he's mentioning something that is, uh, looks like a plurality of some nature. Isaiah, in the prophecy section, the, the uh, Hebrew people always saw God as one, and that's true. The Shema, the Lord our God is one God. Absolutely true one God but we know three persons which is made very clear in the New Testament but the Hebrew people of our day can really only see that that one Uh, what did I say Isaiah 6-8 remember uh, this is the holiness of God that Isaiah experiences what do we have there somebody read that I'm slow
0: I heard the voice, of the Lord saying,
1: "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" Who will go for us? And that us there is not talking about uh, Isaiah and God Himself that's talking, but what? Um, well, it's this great God again. And by the way, this is that uh, Yahweh God that He's experiencing. I he see the, uh, the, the word "us" appears again. Then in chapter 48 of Isaiah. Something just kept developing through the Old Testament and we could probably take a, the rest of the night just looking at the Old Testament of, of seeing the triune God in in that part of the Scripture. 48, 16, and 17, Come near to me. Hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning and from the time that it was I was there and now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent Me. Ah, that's interesting. You have the Messiah involved in this section, along with Lord God, which is dealing with what would be the first person or the Father, and then His Spirit. You have the Trinity right there in that verse. Very quickly Isaiah 61. 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And this would be the Messiah speaking. The Spirit of the Lord God. There you have a, the Trinity all involved. Because the Lord, Yahweh, all of them, has anointed me. Did you know what anoint means? Mashiach, which is where we get our English word Messiah. He is the Anointed One. To preach good tidings to the poor. Oh, you know what? I think this sounds familiar. This is something that Jesus had uh, mentioned before. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Do you remember in Luke? I think it's in Luke chapter 4 where he is in the synagogue in Nazareth in his hometown. They hand him the scripture to read, the scrolls, and he stands up, or sits down, and reads the scripture, and this is the passage that he was to read that day, and it was about him. And he told him that, and it made him mad.
0: <laughs>
1: <So laughs> Would you say?
0: About yeah,
1: this is the triune God, but it's not explained too well. So if you're just if you're just picking this up for the first time, you go, "Who's the us? You'd be, who is the us? Surely God must be." Something by the way, in the beginning, God usually when they, when they would speak of a general God, a God, a, a ruler, or the gods, you know the pagan gods, that would be L. When you add this, it means a plurality. You've heard of a seraphim how about a seraph you know like an angel but if a lot of angels seraphim here we have a plurality of God we're not talking three gods two gods we know New Testament teaches that there's only one God Old Testament teaches one God so therefore we have three personalities in one God Elohim in the beginning Elohim created right the heavens and the earth so but this is interesting we're getting this right from the very get-go. In the very first verse, we're getting some kind of more than one person. And we, we see the Trinity right here in Isaiah, don't we? He's, he's mentioned here a couple of times as time progressed. We could go on and on, and we're not going to have enough time. I've got other verses there, but that shows you a little bit of a sample that the Old Testament gives us a picture of the Trinity. The Trinity existed, always existed. And so, God has had a perfect unity, and He was never lacking in anything, even before the creation. Let's look a little bit in the New Testament, and then we'll, we'll move on. Matthew 3. Matthew 3:16 and 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Jesus being baptized. This is a great scripture for somebody who has problem with the Trinity. Or they'll they'll get into modalism and say, "Well, Jesus is Jesus at one time, then he's the Holy Spirit another time, and then God is the Father, sometimes. That's modalism. That's totally false. Okay? Here you have, at this moment, Jesus is standing there. The Spirit of God is descending on him. And then suddenly a voice comes from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. So you have the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit all in one moment. There's, uh, it's uh, Holy Spirit in, uh, symbolized, uh, you know, like a dove and definitely that everybody can see the Son, and there is the Father uh, with His voice coming from heaven, this is my beloved Son. Anyway, that uh, is in Matthew. But in Matthew 28, that's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the end of His ministry as He's getting ready to um, ascend shortly thereafter. He gives a great commission, and in verse 18, I believe, Jesus came, spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you cannot take that in the Greek and make it be one person. There are three individual people there. That is the Greek syntax. That's the way that it's made. And so therefore you have three persons involved. Um, so we, we know about that great commission. Uh, another one, I'm, I'm going to do one more. There's a, there's a great passage that shows the Trinity again in one verse. How about those JWs and all those cults? All the cults, none of them, will believe in the um, Trinity. In 2 Corinthians 13, right at the end of the book of 2 Corinthians 13, you get the Trinity again. Now, that was in the Gospels. and We'll get an epistle here. Very last verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, which would be the Father there, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Good verse to remember, remember the baptism of Jesus. remember the commission that He gave. Then remember at the very last verse of second Corinthians where you have the Trinity right there. other verses to go to. I gave you some on your outline, but if you want to defend uh, the Trinity, those verses are very, very difficult to um, uh, not believe. You have to de- deny something that is right in front of the face ignore those verses or they oh they have to twist them Uh, they would love to ignore them but when you confront them with that uh, a lot of them will have difficulty and they'll say I don't know or if they really do know or they think they know they'll make up something well that's still that's still Jesus being you know the Holy Spirit Jesus said I will send the Comforter you know in John 14 and uh, you know this will all be sent from God um, I also think of Ephesians 1. When we started Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, one sentence in the Greek, and it starts with the Father. Then it shows the Son. And then, verse 13 and 14, is the Holy Spirit. How they all act. The Father... Is the one who sends the Son who does the redemption, and then the Holy Spirit comes and does the work in us. So all the Trinity is involved. And so we know what was happening before creation God was existing, the Trinity was in perfect unity, they were just enjoying themselves, having great pleasure. (laughs) I mean, they never have had a disagreement. Ephesians 1, yeah, uh, verses 3 through 14. You'll see the Father there. And then you'll see the Son for quite a few verses. And then you get the end at verses 13 and 14. And you'll have the Holy Spirit who seals us. So the Trinity there in in, uh, 12 verses. Okay. What about the plan they made? Well, I've always talked about the divine counsels. Has that ever interested you? They had a, somewhere in eternity, the triune God, and the, I'm trying to put this in a way that we can kind of get some kind of a grasp of it humanly, did a plan. And what they said is, we're going to create a world. And we're going to have people inhabit it. Of course, there's going to be the fall, then there's going to be the redemption plan. And so we look in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, and we see that the Father's involved with that, Elohim. We, we don't have any trouble with that. If you look in Colossians 1.16, I'm just going to give a, a really specific verse that's very up front. And by the way, the JWs really need to see this, and especially how it's set up in the Greek Colossians 1.16 Here you have the Son who is a Creator. For by Him, and this is speaking of Christ, for by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created through Him and for Him you say well how do we know that's Christ well you keep reading He is before all things and in Him all things consist and He is the head of the body the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in all things He may have the preeminence uh, and somebody will say oh what's that firstborn no, I don't really have a problem with that And the Jehovah's Witnesses have you answer. They will say, well, see, He was firstborn. That means He was born whenever He came in the flesh. He was just born a human. He was a son of God, but He was less than than God somehow. But verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And you look at the firstborn and say, oh, well, He was firstborn. That means He was created. Right? No. God. The son was never created. He's always been here. He's eternal. You say, what's his firstborn? Well, the word is prototakos, Proto, first, and dealing with prototakos is dealing with one who is in first place or the preeminent one. Now it's making more sense. We're not talking somebody who was born out of a womb. We're talking about one who is first. He is the first over the church, for instance, the head of the church. Um, Anyway, the Creator there. There's the Son, the Father, the Son. Um, We already noted in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit is hovering, right? The Spirit created. But let's look in Psalm 104, verse 30. By the way, the Psalms have a lot about creation. And even in Job... The rest of the Bible talks about creation a lot. 104 verse 30. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. He sent forth His spirit, there was creation. So, the whole triune God involved in the, in the councils of creation... Well, the people that they were really involving themselves with, of course, they're going to create everybody. Everybody's the creation of God. But ultimately, he has an elect group of people. And we look in Ephesians 1.4. This is before the foundation of the world. We mentioned Ephesians earlier, Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him... Before the foundation, before creation, he chose us. That means a lot, doesn't it? The reason why is that we'd be holy, that we'd be like him, without blame, no sin. He had this plan that he would do that. Uh, let's go on to 2 Timothy 2 9, basically saying the same thing 1 9. I said 2 9, 1 9. And I might have that on the outlines. Two nine is probably pretty good, but it's not going to get what I think what I wanted. Who has saved us and called us? This is what is called, not a general calling here, but what kind of a calling? Effectual. There we go. Effectual calling. That means what God has planned to do, He will do it. He will never fail. So, there is a general calling to everybody. There is an effectual calling. And here it is. In Romans 8, you can find the same thing. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, not because we were good, not because we would respond to Him, but because of, or according to His own purpose and grace. Here's our line, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So we don't believe because we made it happen, but we can believe because God is the one that makes it happen. Before time began. So that takes out every kind of positive note that we can have about ourselves and realize we're stripped to nothing. This happened long before we were born, long before the world was even created. I think that levels it down, doesn't it? I think this great God had something really in mind that He's going to make sure it's going to happen. And if it doesn't, it's going to be less than what God is. And that can't be. Revelation 13:8. and we're coming from a back door on this one. Dennis, we haven't gotten into verse 1 yet. <laughs> Revelation 13, 8, and we're in Revelation. All who dwell on this earth, and this is dealing with the, um, the Antichrist, and it's dealing with uh, the time before Christ comes back. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him, whose names have not been written in the book of life. Worship who? Who's the Him? Antichrist. They will worship Him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There was a book of life written. Before the foundation of the world, there were people who were put into that book of life. All the ones who are not put into the book of life at this time here will be worshiping Antichrist. Turn to 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. This is Antichrist. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So these people are going to worship Antichrist They are not found in the book of life, which was written long before creation. They were not put in that. Okay, uh, go to Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. What the Father's, what the Triune God's plan is involved is this: the Father says, "Okay, I'm going to have people that I have chosen." I'm putting them in the book of life. We're taking out of Ephesians, out of Second Timothy, out of Revelation there. He says, I'm going to give them to the Son. I'm going to give these elect people to my Son. Matthew 25, 34. This is found in the divine councils, which you can't pick up and read. <laughs> but we're reading them here. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you notice how many verses we're finding from the foundation of the world? Come, inherit this. This was for you. This is what's been prepared. Keep going, though. John 17, and this is something even clearer. Jesus... Saying that great prayer which we get to get in on one of the greatest prayers that's ever been said as he's praying this the night before he's going to be crucified. And let's pick it up in verse... What he wants to be is glorified. Let's pick it up verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. When this is done, you'll be glorified, I will be glorified. Now here we go. Ready? As you have given Him authority over all flesh, Christ has that authority, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. Who's the Him? Christ. You should give You should give eternal life to as many as you've given. To the ones you've given Me, I will give eternal life. Keep going. And this is eternal life that they may know you. That's eternal life, knowing Him. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he wants his glory like he had before so that the Father can be glorified. And what he's doing is he's praying also as he's interceding for these ones that have been given him. So now we go into verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now, these are the apostles, just to start with. We'll keep progressing, though. There were certain ones that were given to Christ. Now, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. They have received them. They have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Here we go, verse 9. I pray for them. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Hmm... I'm not praying for everybody else. I'm praying for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. They're yours. You've given to me. I'm praying for them. You can say, well, that's still the apostle, though, right? Well, actually, it's more than that, but we'll say that for right now. Verses 11 and 12. Heavy stuff. Now, I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name by those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. So he prays for their unity. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. Who keeps? Do we keep ourselves? Father keeps us. The Son keeps us. John 10 tells us that. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the Scripture might be fulfilled. That was the way it was made to be anyway. Wow! Okay, ready? Now go to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom You gave Me may be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory which You have given Me for You love Me before the foundation of the world. Go back to John 6 now and we'll see how we as Christians come into that same text. Not trying to read something into you and say, well, that's just the apostles, right? Those whom you have given me. Who are the ones that the Father has given to the Son? Well, we know the apostles and certain chosen ones. But in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What's that? It's
0: right here in John
1: uh, um, 17. Um, and verse 20. Yeah, there we go. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Right. The ones who will believe. Who are they? Well, <laughs> the ones the Father is going to give to the Son. Exactly. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Um, Drop down in verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up at the last day. Go to verse 65. And He said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father the father says I have certain ones I'm going to give you and they are mine I'm giving to you you will give them eternal life and they will be with you forever they'll be your bride I'm giving you a bride going back before the foundation of the world let's go to Acts 2 this was all God's plan who killed Jesus well the Romans did no the Jews did no we did (laughs) Everybody did, right? Our sin killed him, right? But it was still in God's plan that this would happen. Men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves also know Him being delivered by the determined purpose. praharidzo, Determined beforehand. Determined purpose and foreknowledge of God prognosis or prognosco which is to have a relationship it's not to know he knew that we were going to choose him so he chooses us that totally takes away with everything we've been saying anyway no the thing is is foreknowledge is to have a relationship with to know us beforehand not know that we were going to make a decision for him but it's a determined purpose but this time it's talking about Christ And that's what the foreknowledge here is of God and that he knew him. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. So here we have, we have evil men killing him, but yet it was still God's predetermined purpose that this would happen. And you can go back to Genesis 3 and find that out because he said, I will have one who beats Satan. That was called the proto-evangelium, the first good news. But by this time, we have a lot revealed to us, don't we? Chapter 4, verse 27... No, 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 no. Yeah, 27 and 28. Chapter 4. This is all planned by God. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Evil people are going to do things, but yet it's still God's plan that this would happen. How do you explain it? With my finite mind, I'm not even going to try. All I can say is that this is right. The infinite mind knows exactly. But this is always planned. All predetermined. And we'll do one more. John 10, 17 and 18. Incredible stuff. These are the divine counsels. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And so, uh, there again, it, it was still under the power of Christ and it was going to be done in the timing that it was supposed to be done. Um, I like Roman uh, uh, John 10. I am four, 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. My sheep know me as the father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep, the ones he knows. Sixteen. Another sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them I also must bring. The rest of uh, his chosen one. They will hear my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. He will draw them there. Uh, as John chapter six said. Now we, we know redemption was promised way back in Genesis three fifteen after sin, and there was going to be uh, a Messiah. Uh, We get the first good news starting there. We know the redemption is accomplished and it really goes into play in Genesis 12 where you have Abraham or Abram at that time and through that promise to him all the ones who believe like Abraham are going to be in those particular bunch of people. And in Galatians 4 it finally comes to the culmination and uh, it's in verse 4 and 5 and he says but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons and it came into play so it accomplished exactly what he said Um, let's get into the first verse and it's four minutes till wow Okay. in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning beginning time didn't exist it doesn't say time is invented there or created but it didn't exist until this happened until God created at a certain point in eternity God spoke the universe into existence and that includes time as well as space and matter they're all uh, a creation of God they're, they're servants of God Time is God's creature. And time provided the proper framework for creation day one through day six in the creation. Time there plays a huge role. And uh, we'll see as, as it develops, and probably not tonight, but we'll, we'll talk about those days. Are they, are they uh, ages? Are they millions of years? like many Christians are saying, or are they literal 24-hour days? The first two verses of the book of Genesis bring us right up face-to-face with an ultimate reality that there is God, a real God. And there's no surprise that God Himself is the subject here. He is the subject. He's what this is all about. And uh, if you keep uh, looking there, He's the ultimate reality. There's a lot of lessons that we can learn just in this first verse If we miss the significance of this, in the beginning, God. You have to stop there. We just assume, okay, God, yeah, but you have to think about this great God. And it's no accident, in this first chapter, God dominates the chapter. There are something like 35 verses. There are 35 times He is mentioned (laughs) in this chapter. 35 times. God just keeps repeating Himself. So we're impressed by what Moses puts down here that God's a central focus. And you can say, well, of course. But a lot of people don't take that into play. They want to bring in the evolution thing. Because, now that helps God. God gets so much out there but the rest of it's up to that. It's kind of like winding up the clock and saying, okay, do your thing. I'm back here. Uh, God reveals himself to man. In the prayer that I had earlier, I was just th- thanking God for... He reveals Himself. He doesn't have to do this. He didn't have to tell us how we began. God never even proves Himself right here. He doesn't have to give proof. It's ridiculous to try to put some kind of proof here. And, of course, that's what scientists or so-called scientists do. He's written Himself on our hearts, as a matter of fact. And He's revealed Himself unmistakably in creation. He's already built the proof into it. I mean, it's already... Go out and look at creation, right? Romans 1 talks about the people deny that creation and they're suppressing it. Uh, He reveals Himself in His character here. Just think of the names in Genesis. Genesis 1, Elohim. Elohim. there 's a plurality involved there then in in, uh, in the next chapter, you get another name which is Yahweh, which means self existent one the the covenant God that covenants with his people that uh, creates them, and he is Yahweh right and so we see that just by his names we can know who he is and then elohim he 's the eternal he 's the the creator one uh, God had no origin. Exodus 3.14, Moses says, Who do I tell them that you are? And he says, I am that I am. Or simply Yahweh, (laughs) the self-existent one. Uh, He was not always the creator. He's always God. He became the creator. So there's the Christian view or there is the view that there was nothing and then something came out of nothing well that's true something came out of nothing but there was something here before that or there was something some kind of protoplasm or some kind of particle or something and we finally got to the big bang well there's a big bang alright when God spoke Uh, so you see the options it looks like there's three maybe two but some say well that's that's three what I just put forth there but Really, there's no other option. There's only one. And why is the rest of, could we say at least three-fourths of all the population in the world really doesn't believe in the true Creator God? Probably, probably more than that that don't believe in that. Okay? That's amazing. And we're sitting in this, just us, and who are we? And we know this. And true Christians do. The nature of the universe. Incredible. Okay, created. In the beginning, God created. The word is bara, or bara. That means to bring into existence. By the way, it means to bring into existence something that was not in existence. And that's the way that it's used in Scripture and only once here to this divine work of God. That's the only way that the Hebrew people could use that whenever they use that word bara. Bara. Created creating something out of nothing. That's an amazing God. There was nothing that He could take from. <laughs> uh, ex nihilo is the word. Something out of nothing. Out of nothing. Romans 4.17 We get a New Testament passage dealing with that. Okay. Indeed, you are called Did I say 4? I'm sorry. 4.17 I say 2 or 4. 4. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, speaking of Abram, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Make something out of nothing. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Alright. Alright. Who? Being... In the brightness of His glory, in the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, what am I doing here? Uh, verse 2. He made the worlds. 11.3 is, is better. For oh, at, at that moment. 11.3. By faith... We have, we're the ones who have the faith, not God. God doesn't have faith. Yeah. He's a faithful God, but He doesn't have faith. You know? He doesn't have to believe in something. You know, he is. We believe in it. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. The word, worlds were framed by the Word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Wow. How? did God do this? That's the next question. How did He do that? Well, if we look in Genesis 1 and look at verse 3, and I'm getting ready to kind of finish this thing up, okay? Ready? Hang on. Hang on. 1, 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Right? And verse nine. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. God created simply by speaking it into existence with nothing there to come from. That's how he created. That's power. Um We could go to other verses. I like Psalms 33, verse 6 and 9. If you want to look at that while I'm talking, go ahead. Uh, Psalm 148, verse 5. You get the affirmation of it in the New Testament. What you see in the Old Testament may be a little hard to understand. You look in the New Testament you see that fulfilled. Why did He create it? I'm going to finish this up real quick and I want you to go, wow, because we've already kind of touched on it, but I saved this to, to really the last. Why did He create? Well, if you say because He wanted to, you're correct. But let's go a little further. He desired to do it for the very reason uh, because eternally in His presence He's going to be praised and glorified. Everything that He does is for His glory, isn't it? An immense display of His majesty and glory is put out in creation. Angels see it. Mankind sees it. We go, wow. His nature, his very his very nature is put on display. If you look in Revelation four, eleven, Isaiah forty three there. Here we go. Not only that he wanted to and he wanted to put on display his great majesty and his great glory. That's what he does. He just says, Here I am. Glorify me. I want you to see this. This is just amazing. He just keeps seeing, showing more and more in his revelation right here, doesn't he? But you can go outside and you can see that.
0: Oh, this,
1: this is the great God. This is my Father. Well, he had a gift that he wanted to give to his son. And we have kind of looked at that. I'm going to create, he says to the Son in the councils beforehand, if I can say it this way in a human way. I'm going to create, I'm going to create a world, a universe, and, and the focus of all this, I'm going to redeem out of all of humanity a bride for you that's going to be perfect without sin, without spot or wrinkle. I'm going to bring that bride to glory no matter how sinful that bride was And that bride is going to be clothed in your righteousness and holiness forever. And I'm going to give that to you. That's my love gift to you, my son. And the Holy Spirit is going to be working in there, bringing the very life of God in us, working all the work that needs to be done, And the glorious plan of God is to give forever and ever His Son this great gift called the church, which is us. All the people that He has chosen, who would reflect His glory and serve Him and praise Him forever, will be the perfect bride. And He's going to give, in in this creation, He's going to give the opportunity by virtue of this creation of, of man to display something. To display something he would have not otherwise been able to display. And that he's going to display his grace. Despite that sin he's going to put on display grace and mercy. And of course that love. Because how could he display that grace without taking a terrible motley crew and then changing them into a spotless bride and having the mercy of knowing that we should have gone straight on into hell, that's where I was heading and He stopped me right there at the perfect time, called me into His kingdom and now I am part of this great plan. And so He did it to put His glory on display, the glory of His creation and the glory of His redemption. And we're part of it. Folks, that's it for the night. We're way past time. Sorry about that. But I hope it was good enough to keep your attention to want to come back to next week because we're going to have to answer the question, why did he do it in six days and not in six minutes or six seconds or a split second or a nanosecond? And then we're going to have to answer uh, when did this happen? How many years ago? Dennis, how many billion years was it? And you know that I'm not going to leave it with that. It's not billions or millions. I want to tell you, it's thousands. And it's a younger. And we're going to see why. That's what we're going to do next week. Does that sound good? Was this good enough to miss about 10, well, half an hour of a football game? It's not halftime yet. Oh, was that good I enough? Is this going to work? Yeah. Okay. Remember, we're part of this creation and God had it planned even at this moment where we're at right now. God's in it. Let's pray.